very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you wonder how to listen to all of our material, including tonight's second part, which you don't want to miss, all you need to do is just go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the subscribe button choose from a variety of subscription models that we have and take fairy tests with you wherever you go. We have thousands of people around the world who have been enjoying it for many, many years and I want to thank you for all your support. And for the ones who continue asking me what's going to happen with Sanitas, well you know the answer. We're no longer producing shows on SanitasRadio.com That doesn't mean that Veritas will not discuss health. It will. In fact, a lot of the topics that Sanitas used to discuss are now coming to Veritas as well. So you could say that they both merged. However, the question I get all the time is, so what if you want to listen to Sanitas programs? Well, very simple. Go to SanitasRadio.com and you can subscribe and download all the programs, three seasons worth of great stuff that's going to change your life. Or you can buy individual USB uh, flash drives that you can take with you wherever you go. So, Sanitas is still there. And surprisingly, a lot of people are subscribing now that the show is over. But it's really not over because we're taking over here on Veritas. We're going to mix it all. And we're going to have it all encompassing the whole spectrum. Uh, going all the way from health to the paranormal. So, you will not be missing out. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion or simply want to send me a message all you have to do is click on the contact button i always love to hear from you as a former private investigator and forensic writer tonight's special guest has spent much of his career identifying forged documents working undercover to infiltrate theft rings and investigating questioned deaths now he turns his considerable investigative skill toward the paranormal, researching the most well-known and mysterious phenomena all over the world, spontaneous human combustion, UFO visitations, auras, electronic poltergeists, and many, many more, with an eye toward solving these mysteries rather than promoting or dismissing them. His name is Joe Nickel, who has been called the modern-day Sherlock Holmes. Since 1995, he has been the world's only full-time professional science-based paranormal investigator. 
His careful, often innovative investigations have won him international respect in a field charged with controversy. He received his PhD from the University of Kentucky. His website is joenickel.com and he joins us directly from Amherst, New York. Hello, Joe, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. I'm good. Well, let me just say this at the beginning of the interview, Joe. We deal with all this, these topics all the time. And every so often we get people saying, you know what? It's time. It's time to bring somebody else from the, not the opposite side, but somebody who can look into these topics that you discuss, me being me, Mel, so they can give them their perspective, their scientific, scientifically based perspective, not any debunking way, but any scientific methodological way. And I think you are the right person to discuss this. Joe, how did you begin all of this? Well, you know, I think I'm just an ordinary sort of guy, and I grew up, um, of course, at the age of eight, I was Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you can picture me <laughs> with my magnifying glass. Right. Yep. Uh, but I, I was interested in the paranormal like everyone else. Uh, you know, at Halloween, I might dress up as a ghost, and uh, I wasn't from a family that was very superstitious, but I wouldn't have said that I could discount totally belief in ghosts or flying saucers. And and I was just curious ab- about these phenomena. And as time went on, as, as I went into the six, 1960s, of course, these topics like Bermuda Triangle and Bigfoot and so on became very, very popular. And my view has always been that a, a mystery deserves to be looked at, not with, and this is what dis, I think differentiates me from people, let's say, on the other side. And when I say the other side, I don't mean the other side. I just mean the other side of the argument. And and that is that uh, I think a lot of people that are pro-paranormal want to keep mysteries mysterious. They really don't want them to be solved. Uh, as soon as you appear to solve a mystery, you know, you start getting... Um, you know, name-calling, you get people saying quickly, well, but, but, but what about this case? They're trying to, to completely baffle you and end up with mystery as if mystery were some kind of goal. Not for me. Mystery is just that. It's a mystery, and mysteries as a detective are meant to be solved. Right. So not not dismissed out of hand, not debunked in the sense that before you even tell me what your mystery is, I'm going to say, well, I'm not going to believe it, you know. No, that would be wrong. That puts the debunker as sort of the flip side of the true believer, if that makes sense. Almost dogma. Yeah, people, people have the answer they want. Don't bother them with the facts too much. And uh, they're going to end up where they started. They're going to be in the same position no matter how you flip the coin. And one's always going to be heads and the other one's always going to be tails. And that's not what I'm trying to do. I I really want to know if you tell me that there's, you know, a case. um, my, My earliest important case was in Toronto, uh, around 1970, 72, that period of time. And 
people were reporting at the most famous house, I guess, in all of Canada, in McKinsey House in Toronto, they were saying that they were hearing footsteps on the stairs late at night when there was no one in the house and the house was locked. And this would be the, the caretaker's family. Um, and that other other things were being reported. Um, so I had an opportunity to go visit McKinsey House. And in detective fashion, I wanted to find out what was causing this, uh, the, just for one example, the footsteps on the stairs. And to make a long story short, um, I found that next door to McKinsey House was a building with a parallel staircase. The staircase was of iron, and the two staircases were about 40 or 40-some inches away. And there was a late-night cleanup crew and a caretaker's family next door. So there were all these times that there were footsteps on the stairs inches away from that at McKinsey House. So if you were across the house lying abed, you would hear over there where your staircase is, if you follow me, you would hear footsteps. And of course, you would think they were on your staircase. That that investigation really burned through my brain. Because when I went next door and found the the old caretaker there, and and he was sort of chuckling to himself, and I said, this has gone on for 10 years. Why didn't you come forward? And he said, well, he didn't think it was his place to rain on people's parades. And I said, but you know, they they had exorcisms here. They, reporters would come, and this would be the obligatory Halloween ghost story. And this this went on and on and on. I said, do you mean to tell me that over the 10-year period, no one ever came next door? And he said, that's right. You're the only one. And believe me, I go to New Orleans all the time, and I stay in hotels that are allegedly haunted. And it's, in my opinion, it's just a way to bring people in and just, you know, for revenue at the same time. Yes. Are there places where you have used a scientific methodology where you cannot, you, you haven't been able to come to a conclusion? Well, that's my most often asked question, and and I think it's just a very good question. You know, it does go to sort of to the heart of what I'm what I'm about. Uh, the simple answer to the question, I think, in the spirit that that you mean it and so forth, is, and I would maybe clarify the question a little bit. Um, I don't know everything, and obviously I'm I'm not just some human uh, machine who can just solve everything, <laughs> uh, you know, at the snap of the fingers, sort of like a homicide detective solving every case, you know, in in an hour or two. Right. But but in the spirit in which you which, which you and others usually ask that, I would I would put it this way that it, that I've never found an instance where I thought I had a fair chance to really conduct a real investigation. I've not thought that that uh, I found anything paranormal. Uh, when you say that you can't, uh, anything you can't explain is really kind of a different issue because 
let's say that we had the same situation as McKinsey House, but we went next door and there was nothing there, or there was no building next door, and there were footsteps on the stairs. Does it mean then that because you didn't explain that case, and, and there might be you know, such cases, therefore this is proof of, of the existence of ghosts. And this this gets us pretty quickly to maybe the, the uh, maybe if I could share my kind of uh, overarching view of the paranormal, uh, and this is a critical view, and that's that it's it's mostly based on negative evidence. We don't really have a Bigfoot. We don't really have, no matter what you've heard in conspiracy theories, we don't really have a crashed saucer hidden away somewhere, and so on. What we have are these questions, what was that? What did that person hear or see? What were the footsteps on the stairs? What what was the bright light in the sky? Uh, why did Mrs. Smith's cancer go into remission? And we may not readily know, and and maybe we won't ever know what caused something, because it may have been fleeting. It may have been a -a one-of-a-time occurrence and not be repeatable, and we would just never really find out what streaked across the sky that moment. But the problem is that to argue from we don't know what it was, that therefore we do know what it was, you see, is a logical fallacy. You can't say... I don't know. Therefore, I do know. It's called, in logic, it's called, um, because this is a high-class show, Mel, I'm going to give you the Latin. It's called argumentum ad ignorantium. It means an argument from ignorance. And it, it doesn't mean the person is an ignoramus, you know, or stupid or something. It just means that you, no matter how smart you are, you're arguing that we don't know and trying to make an inference from it. And the the fact is in scientific pursuits or in you know scholarly pursuits or any anywhere where it really matters if you don't know you simply don't know. It doesn't prove the paranormal. The paranormal can't be proven in the way that almost always the paranormalists are trying to prove it. Well, we don't know. See, it's a mystery. Do you recur to Occam's razor while conducting your investigations? I do. I do use Occam's razor, and um, um, whenever I can, uh, I'm trying to. Uh, let me see if I can say this: Wh- whether I'm investigating something paranormal, or historical, or a forensic, or you know, a homicide case, for example, um, I'm always doing what I think is kind of the basis of any kind of such inquiry. And that's I'm trying to have a solution, and that solution is going to be more or less an hypothesis. I'm going to try to give you an explanation that I think fits the known evidence. And it must be, and here's where Occam's razor comes in, it it should it, and Occam's razor is not an absolute principle of science or anything. It's just kind of a rule of thumb right. that you and I could talk about, and and it it basically is saying you should choose the the hypothesis that makes the fewest assumptions. In other words, if something could have just been a meteor, 
streaked across the sky, or it could be an extraterrestrial craft, then Occam's razor would say, well, preference is given to meteors because we know there are meteors. It doesn't mean there couldn't be an extraterrestrial craft, but you would, you know, you would have to go further and say, and then it landed and these non-terrestrial creatures came out with six arms and glowing eyes and they came at me and so forth. And then I would need, wouldn't I, a, a better explanation than meteor. And, and I would then, I think, need a little more information and I would want to prioritize how good the evidence was that this actually happened. You know, that it wasn't a dream state or a hoax or something. And, and that's we use why many, we... No, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But, no, no, you know, go we, ahead. We use, we use many mottos, many quotes on this program, but the most important one to me is, I don't want to believe, I want to know. And we discuss many outrageous topics to some people. UFOs are very outrageous to some people. It's they they think that as a fact because many of them say that they have gone through it, contacts, abduction, yes. you name yes. it. But in my case, I discuss them. Does it mean that I believe? Absolutely not. I either no, know I, or I don't, and that's why you're here today. Right, and and I think you know you and I are are on the same page with that. That doesn't mean you know you don't go one way and I the other on on some of our thinking. Right. But but I think that's that just has to be what really matters. I really I mean sometimes people will will say, "Well, you're looking for the truth." And you know, and 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 I know the name of your show and uh, but but I I'm always a little cautious to say, "Look, I don't claim I know the truth." That's a big thing to claim. But I do I do want you to believe me when I say I'm looking for the truth. I am honestly looking for the truth, and and if I if I fail to use the right principles to do that, I hope you will tell me in a nice way. Ah, point of you know you made a mistake in your facts there, or or you say you're you're trying to to do this, but it looks like you're doing that, and and so on. I, I really want to know. I, I in other words, I can't claim that I've got the the market cornered on uh, on the truth. But I sure would would want to be thought of as someone who's trying to get there, and um, you know, I, 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 a case I've been thinking about recently that I'm going to be talking about somewhere more more elaborately. But if you know the case of the the Flatwoods Monster, I've heard about it in, in the early '50s in in West Virginia, right, and. These boys uh, saw a monster, and I, I made a, a very serious investigation. Went there and talked to very elderly men, and so forth, and and came to the conclusion that they had seen a barn owl. They said it had a, a shape, a sort of heart-shaped face, and that it had, when it swooped at them, it had terrible claws, and so forth. And it was just a perfect description of a barn owl, except they thought it was taller because it was on a branch. And Occam's razor would say, you know, that's a better explanation than an extraterrestrial, which was the subject uh, being touted. Well, anyway, I, I, I worked out an elaborate uh, explanation for that, and some years later, 
a movie was being made called Mothman. Mothman's probably better known than the Flatwoods Monster. And my which, first which is reaction, featuring the X Files, I think. Mm-hmm. My my first reaction, I took a took a look sort of at it, and and uh, too quickly, because I was hurrying to get an article out, uh, kind of in advance of a movie on Mothman. I I said, well, this is sounds like the Flatwoods Monster again, another Barnell, another West Virginia case, another West Virginia Barnell. And I had occasion later to sort of, after the pressure was off, and I, but I'd published an article saying that. And I thought, you know, I really didn't spend the time on that like I usually do. And I, I shouldn't get caught up in deadlines and having to rush something. And I should go down to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and spend some time down there. And when I did, I determined... With some um, elaborate, uh, you know, investigative work, that it wasn't a barn owl at all. The, the and the secret was the the eyes were said to be shining, not not glowing. This was often misreported. No, Linda Scarberry said that the eyes were shining from their car lights, like bicycle reflectors. They were they were shining crimson just as bright as bicycle reflectors. And that's not a barn owl. It does not have that, uh, that color or level of eye shine. But it turns out that there is an, an owl even larger than the barn owl that does have that, and it's exactly, its habitat is exactly that area where it was reported. And I talked to wildlife experts, and I wrote a new article, and I said I made a mistake. And one of my friends said, for heaven's sake, Nickel, barn owl, barn owl, who cares if it's a barn or a barred owl? And I said, I care. And everybody who cares about these things ought to care because I'm trying to... He said, well, you debunked it anyway. And I said, yes, but you see, I'm not out to debunk. I'm out to explain and anyway, I, I often tell that story on myself. I'm, I'm not, you know, proud of, the, <laughs> of that. But I'm, 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 I guess I'm, I'm kind of pleased with myself ultimately that I'm willing to say, okay, I, I was wrong, and here's now what I think. And there are still people who disagree with me, but, but I've, I've had people now. I've been on television shows about Mothman and so forth and had producers who get a barred owl and capture that red eye shine, and it's very convincing. Well, the way you do your investigations, the way you engage with people, and this is why I chose you, is because you do it in a very professional but also in a very respectful manner. I've heard other people who are not you. They're debunkers, they come with their minds already set in a very dogmatic way to say no, even with any evidence provided. Because there's another, there's a flip side to that coin. But why don't we begin with with your book? Because I thought it was fascinating. And, and the way you've done this, you've had decades of experience writing and, and investigating these cases. And you decide after you have X amount of cases 
then you put them into a book, which I think is, is very, very clever to do. So you can present the material in, in, in a book uh, way. I'm going to be jumping around with cases, but let's just begin with the first one. The case of the petrified girl. What is this? Well, this was a case um, when I was uh, a boy growing up in my home county in eastern Kentucky. There was just this folk tale about um, the need to relocate an entire cemetery because groundwater was being uh, polluted and there was uh, an epidemic of, I think, typhoid uh, suspected. And... um, the the story is that workmen um, went to this particular grave and just interned, and um, it was a girl named uh, Nanny, and uh, she um, they dug her up, and her body instead of having uh, skeletonized and decomposed was still intact. And she seemed to be petrified. In fact, as they lifted the coffin up, uh, and of course there was water, and they drained the water off, uh, it was quite heavy and, and so forth. And I pursued this case because it was just of interest to me, having grown up with a story, and now as an adult who could, who could look into it. And I was able... Um, the best name I could find with a folklore was Mini Wheeler, and I found that uh, that in fact uh, the records showed there was a real person named named Nancy or Nanny Wheeler, and and it was just the right time, and I was able to to show um, with a lot of boring evidence and records that she had died and been interred in that cemetery, and. The relevant points are that, uh, for one thing, the time between her death and burial and the the uh, digging up of her body, the exhumation, was not a really long period. So it wasn't uh, as remarkable as it could have been if the you know the grave were five or ten years old. It would be pretty remarkable. And yet we have stories like that from uh, particularly in some cases when um, in Slavic countries, when people are dug up like that, they're said to be vampires. And in Catholic countries, they're often said to be incorruptible. And some of them are made saints. And I think the same thing happened in the case of Nanny Wheeler that probably what had happened is that the body simply was unusually preserved. And that can happen in kind of two ways. One is that people put in an above-ground tomb that's quite in a dry area, and the tomb is very hot inside, and the the corpse kind of uh, uh, bakes in the tomb. And uh, under the right circumstances, the body uh, gets ahead of the the uh, corruption and and starts to become mummified. And once that process starts, it it may just continue and you you have cases of just accidental mummification. It happens, you know, people find uh, um, people in in an attic of an abandoned house. There are stories where 
bodies are found like that in unusual circumstances, but they are scientifically explainable. Nanny's situation from from the folk tales and what evidence I could glean was that her coffin was the opposite of that. It had been inundated with groundwater. And you can have a similar effect. Um, it's not mummification, but it, it can cause the fatty tissue of the body to, uh, for one thing, the constant water will keep vermin away, will keep, uh, you know, the, the uh, maggots and so forth away. And what can happen is that the body's uh, fat can turn Mineralizes. It, it, well, it's, it actually turns into something like soap. It's called mm-hmm. grave wax. And then from that stage, it may go on to a kind of mummification. So there are, and this is the kind of thing, not to dwell too much on, on just an esoteric case, but um, with with anything, the devil's in the details. You need to know, because there's not one explanation for every unusual case of incorruptibility. There's not one explanation for all flying saucers. Not every sound of footsteps on stairs, I can assure you, is due to a staircase next door. I wish it were that simple. So I'm, I developed very early on this idea of, and it, it's very similar to what homicide detectives do, case by case. Don't ask me about, well, well, what causes homicides, you would ask the detective. Well, he would say, all kinds of things do it, and, uh, you know, give me an example of what you're looking for. And and I would say, um, I I don't know what all ghosts are. I don't have an explanation for that. And that's, you're asking me to be sort of a debunker if you ask me that question. But if you say, what about this particular case, then I'm prepared to to tell you what I found, or I'm prepared to maybe go investigate it. And and every work is really a work in progress, even though I've written and published these in a book and other books. I'm prepared at any time, and this does happen occasionally, where I will go back or new information comes forward and I will revise and extend an investigation. I've not very often been... Um, Proven very wrong, uh, but but even getting a Mothman wrong a little bit was um, you know was a wake up call. And I think of uh, the other case that I want to discuss now: the magicians among the spirits. I think of the Davenport brothers, probably the the greatest mediums of their kind that the world has ever seen. Oh, I yes. think of the magician Harry Houdini. Did they have spiritual powers, Joe, or can we prove? They were simply illusionists or hoaxers. I think we can we can say to to go to the bottom line. I think we can say they were merely entertainers, uh, riding the wave of of interest in in spiritualism that grew up after the the Fox sisters uh, about eighteen forty eight. Uh, these two schoolgirls really fooled the world. They they started spiritualism. They were producing knocking sounds that would answer questions. And they could communicate with a ghost of a murdered peddler. And pretty soon, the girls could 
communicate with the Spirit and answer questions for you, your own uh, loved one, and so forth. And they became fabulously famous, and spiritualism developed and went all over the United States, crossed Europe, became fashionable all over Europe, and so forth. And just a few years after they started it, and they, the girls would 40, 40 years later confess that they had scammed everyone. They showed on a stage in New York City that with a big audience watching them, they showed how they slipped their foot out of their shoe and snapped their big toe to pop against a board and make, make the snapping sounds. And the, the irony was people didn't want to believe them. <laughs> All the spiritualists said, oh, well, of course, uh, they're just down on their luck and they're trying to make money with this fake expose. <laughs> sort of sort of amazing when people, despite absolute proof, just, you know, won't believe it. Cognitive, the cognitive dissonance. Yeah, yeah. And um, the Davenports I, I knew pretty well. But one day I was at Lilydale, which is the world's largest spiritualist village. And that's a whole village in western New York. It, it kind of reminds you of an artist's colony or something like that. It's a beautiful place on a lake. Um, trim little cottages. And the difference between it and an artist's colony is the artist's colony might have people's names, so-and-so watercolorist or so-and-so artist. And at Lilydale, they say so-and-so medium or so-and-so psychic or something like that. And I was there at the museum at Lilydale, and one day, I'd been there many times, and one day there was something new in one of the cases, and it was this big scrapbook. And I, I said, Joyce, what is what is this? She said, oh, that's the Davenport scrapbook. Want to see it? And she pulls it out of the display case and plops it down on top of the case. And I'm being very careful to turn the page. I can see it's eight, early, you know, around 1850s right off. And then she turned and she said, you know, Joe, I wouldn't let just anyone look at that. She said, in fact, I wouldn't let the mediums here look at it. But she said, I know you're a scholar and you'll appreciate this. And we just had this great relationship where she's on the spiritualist side and I'm the, you know, the questioner uh, skeptic. And we were great friends. Mulder and, and Scully. Yeah, and she would say, you know, she told Catherine Wicker in her book, Lilydale, she said, uh, Joe and I are just alike. And my skeptical friends just laughed at that. They said, well, how you couldn't be more different. She's on that side and you're on this side. And I said, no, no, in Joyce's mind, and I said, very much in my own. Uh, we are both sincere. We, we're looking for the truth. We find it a fabulously interesting subject. We can talk together endlessly about it, and we might change the other's mind on some point and some fact and are prepared to do that all the time. So I studied this scrapbook, and what was interesting, to sort of get back to your question, and I revisited this very issue just uh, a handful of weeks ago, just very few weeks ago. I was back at Lilydale. And I've never spoken there before because, you know, as you can imagine, some of the people regard me as the enemy, yeah. but a few people were always nice to me. And But they were hosting a group of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, you know, the ones that call themselves the Baker Street Irregulars, yeah. that big international club. And they were having a big conference 
over to nearby resort, and they were making a field trip to Lilydale, and they wanted someone to give them a talk. And it was suggested that if I could just tell them about Houdini and Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, and Conan Doyle's friend was Harry Houdini, the great magician, and they were friends who had a falling out over the Davenports. And I'm looking at this scrapbook, and I can see evidence just turning the page of the scrapbook in which, well, here, Conan Doyle's right. And, oh, wait, here, here, Houdini is right on this point. And it was just for me a great um, um, sort of eye-opener. And and basically, um, to shorten this uh, suitably, Houdini was saying that he had met uh, uh, one of the boys in his old age, Ira Davenport, and and Ira confessed to him that they were he was he and Houdini were just alike. The boys would be tied up in a cabinet, and spirit effects would happen. But Ira showed how he would get out of his ropes, sort of the same way Houdini would, and then he would slip back into them at the end of the séance. And so Houdini was right. Ira was a fake, and it was all for entertainment. But Conan Doyle had argued that that they were really spiritualists and were claiming to be spiritualists and were traveling around with a spiritualist minister and so forth. And Houdini had dismissed all that as not, not you know, no such thing. And in fact, both men were right and both men were wrong. And this is where it gets, you know, uh, that's that's where things get interesting is when you can sort that out. So... Uh, the scrapbook would show you uh, there was some automatic writing uh, or psychic writing in the early pages that I recognized. There were um, news stories and stuff that showed that they were posing as spiritualists, traveling with spiritualists, and so forth. No question about that. At the same time, there were these few other uh, newspaper clippings with headlines like, Davenport Boys Arrested. And you would think, uh-oh, let's read this. And and there would be a case in which um, uh, the, the audience got suspicious and may, maybe someone caught them doing their tricks, and there was a big scene over it. For example, in one town, I think in Ohio, I'm not sure, but one town where a printer, uh, when, it, when the Davenport boys invited people up on stage to make sure everything was on the up and up and to tie them and attest that everything was fair and they were securely tied and all that. One guy who volunteered was a local printer and he had slipped and had with him some printer's ink. And while the others were tying the boys, he took the opportunity secretly to smear printer's ink on the neck of the violin. These instruments would play by the spirits you see in the dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when the Gas lights were turned back up after the seance uh, that one of the Davenport boys had black ink smeared all over his face and neck. Pretty effective, <laughs> pretty effective, if very impolite and rude uh, way to do it. And so that that's, I think, I, I'm going to give you a very short answer, but, but uh, and there's much more in my book, but it's a, it's, it's a lesson in, Going back in time, trying to investigate, getting lucky because while I think we knew a lot of this in other ways, this 
this scrapbook, and a second scrapbook has since surfaced, and it was owned by, the, I believe he was the great-grandson of uh, of Ira Davenport, and I met him. He's a very nice gentleman, and uh, I was able to study another scrapbook and a little travel book that they had, and those are now also have been donated to Lilydale, and I have access to them. And they're just, a, you know, one of those great treasures, if you care about that whole era, uh, real insight. Imagine two scrapbooks kept by the boys who did this with occasionally little written-in comments, and and they put in the good and the bad. If they if something went against them, they put the clip pasted it right in. Didn't matter. And we have those. It's really uh, really quite quite wonderful. I remember you, you. I used to go to Wendy's when I was a, a little kid, and not because of the burgers or the food, but they had tables, and on the tables they had uh, the printed format of, of newspapers from the 1800s, and I used oh, to yeah. enjoy reading all those old stories. And we're going to discuss snake oil and all that stuff later, but you could see that printed on the tables. But the next case is about spontaneous human combustion, and before we discuss this case, let me just say that. It, It was in science class in elementary or high school that I, I remember hearing about this the first time. In fact, the black and white image still haunts me when I think about it. Take us back to 1966, the case of Dr. John Irving Bentley. Yes, at Cattersport, Pennsylvania. And Dr. Dr. Bentley was uh, an elderly physician, um, and he was... Um, found in his bathroom with his where he had obviously made his way apparently on fire uh, into the bathroom seeking desperately to put out the fire to get water there was a broken pitcher uh, in the in the uh, toilet where he'd obviously tried to just get some water up and, and put out the fire but It had not. Uh, he had not been successful, and he had fallen onto the floor of the bathroom and been consumed in fire. And these cases, and I, I deal with just a handful of these, but I have, uh, with a forensic friend, we've looked at more than 30 cases of this phenomenon that's called spontaneous human combustion. And again, we have to be very careful here by saying you can't just have one explanation and get rid of 35 cases, say. You have to look at each one. But there are some commonalities, a couple of categories, and you can pretty well sift through. But basically what people are saying is that when someone is found burned to death in a building and there's no apparent reason why they should have caught on fire, So they might have just burst into flame from spontaneous uh, combustion of their body materials somehow. And and this is important. They burned rather thoroughly. They almost looked like they were put into a crematorium. Mm -hmm. uh, the bones could be burned very severely and even reduced to powder, what's called being calcined. Uh, and yet, nearby... Objects. I mean, maybe just a, a foot or two away or some very close proximity like that are not burned at all. And so, you, you know, your mind is, is kind of baffled by these just 
as you saw that picture and, and you think that's a that's a bizarre and odd picture. Because usually what you would have is a house would burn down and everything is burned and right. the body is is you know, been charred all over. It's a very different effect. It's very strange and very bizarre. But what we did was to go back on this case and look and and on on the many cases that we looked at, we would go back to and look at newspaper accounts, uh, uh, autopsy reports, police, anything that we could find that might still be existing, and try to go back to day one and see what was, uh, because a lot of folklore happens over a period of time. A lot of false information gets brought in. And we find that by going back to the original earliest sources, you're apt to get sometimes some real facts that are helpful. And what we found was this, that Dr. Bentley had a habit as this old man, about 92, I think, uh, 90 and 92, he would uh, doze off. And he lived alone. So, you know, he he had a nurse that would come and see him some, but he was left alone a lot. And he smoked a pipe and his clothing was pockmarked with burns from his um, pipe, dozing off and, and dropping, and he would, you know, pat out the the, the fire. So I, I think that's what actually happened. There were burn traces between the sitting room and the and the bathroom that suggested that the fire that he caught on fire made his way with his walker into the bathroom, as I suggested, to put out the fire, was overcome. He could have had a heart attack. He could have, any, any number of things could happen. But he was just, and it's rather pitiful to think about. Uh, the old man just, you know, was not able to to survive. He fell on the floor then, and I believe that the linoleum was flammable and may have mm-hmm. started burning under him. He was not a heavy man. He was a lean man. Fat people often, um, in, in these cases, when the person is obese, um, their body fat often plays a really important role in this. Um, another case that I discuss in the book is that of the cinder woman, Mary Reeser. And when she was last seen, she was smoking a cigarette and had taken two second all sleeping tablets. So again, like it with Dr. Bentley, you see a kind of this doesn't sound very spontaneous, does it? Sounds like these are these are smoking deaths. And they sound, you know, okay, there's some mystery yet left, yes, but it doesn't sound like spontaneous combustion, it sounds like careless use of smoking materials. As she was wearing flammable nightclothes, but she was obese, Dr. Bentley was not. And in her case, we believe that body fat, uh, once it caught on fire, was uh, melted and absorbed in the clothing, and this fueled more fire to burn still more of the body. Uh, its effect now established, when we started this, it was not really a, considered a forensic fact. It was just a theory. But now it's pretty well considered uh, established in forensic science, this so-called wick effect that the clothing can absorb burning um, grease or fat from the body, and that works like a wick to make it very efficient. 
And there's never a big fire, but it's burning over and over and over very thoroughly. So you get in it, the effect of a very severe burning, but at no time was it particularly uh, a large blaze. In Dr. Bimley's case, um, we said that even though he was lean, of course, there is some fat, even in a lean person, in, in the thighs, for example, in the belly, um, and this could have some effect, but... We thought in his case, because if you remember that picture, there was a hole burned through the floor. Right. And we had information about that, that that there was flooring and subflooring and beams underneath. And we think that as the linoleum caught on fire and then the fire burned uh, more and more underneath him, and it didn't burn sideways very much. If you notice when you put a log on a fire, a campfire, the ends of the log, uh, you, if you want the log to burn up, you have to keep pushing the ends in. Fire does not burn sideways very well. It burns up, and it can burn it can burn uh, down if something's helping it do that, like dripping fat, soaking down linoleum and so forth. And also, we invoked in that case something that's called the chimney effect. The fire, once it got started and burned a little bit of a hole through the floor, was drawing air, cool air from the basement, and was was sort of uh, accelerating the fire and keeping it very hot and intense. So we worked out, in, in each of the cases we investigated, we went back and tried to find what the actual facts were, and then we tried... Um, Rather than just say, oh, spontaneous human combustion, we, we, we said, well, first of all, it looks like it's not. And secondly, here is a scenario that we believe could most likely have been what happened. And and our work was published in a fire and arson journal, and then um, I published articles on it. Eventually, it got into an arson textbook, a forensic textbook. I was on TV shows. I mean, it, because it was just such an interesting and gruesome mystery. And just a few years ago, maybe three years ago or so, I was invited by the New York State Academy of Fire Science to come as a keynote speaker and uh, explain this phenomenon thoroughly. They they wanted it uh, you know, almost debunked because they said, look, we still have people that come across, fire experts who come across a rare case like this, and they're just totally baffled because it doesn't fit with their normal experience, and they they, they read all this silly literature uh, about the supernatural aspect, and we want them to stick to science. So I, I'm actually lectured on this at the Fire Academy. But I will say, um, just to sort of step back and put this into perspective, this was one of those mysteries fairly early in my career where I would say, even all these years later, looking back, this really was a, a legitimate mystery. You see, just as, as as I think you you yourself intuited, this is a, this is a mystery. What is going on here? And it was a real mystery. It wasn't something made up or uh, hyped or you know somebody is trying to hustle you. Um, this wasn't. These were all real cases. They actually happened, and they really needed an explanation. And we we tried to provide it, and I think uh, I think we succeeded. 
When you added the exploding bodies, it makes me think uh, one of my businesses is a restaurant. I remember many years ago when you could still smoke at a bar. I remember oh, yeah. this, this elderly lady who used to come to the bar almost on a daily basis with a, an oxygen tank, and she oh, would God. smoke at the bar. So yeah. that, thank, thankfully, nothing happened, but she could have been one of those <laughs> spontaneous combustion or exploding bodies. But what is yeah, the... Yeah, absolutely. What is the preternatural... Preternatural. Uh, preternatural combustibility, and what is the source for the ignition of the body then? Well, the preternatural combustibility is just another label for basically the same phenomenon. It means supernatural combustibility. They're saying that somehow you're, they're saying, okay, uh, there are a few cases that people like Nickel uh, debunk, and they say the person was smoking or something. Okay, okay, they, they've got a point. The person was smoking, so it doesn't seem like spontaneous combustion. But how could a little bitty tiny cigarette burn the body of a big, heavy, fat woman like Mary Reeser? And I'm putting it in kind of joking terms, but they they can make it sound much more mysterious. And and the and so they're saying maybe the the fire played a role to get the fire started, but how did they burn so thoroughly, and why is nothing else burned? And they go on to the same scenario, you see. And so they've made up this other term. So when you prove that the person was smoking or there was a knocked-over oil lamp or any of a number of things that we found, then their fallback position was to say, okay, well, maybe it's not spontaneous combustion. Maybe it's preternatural combustibility. <laughs> In other words, just what you've proven with the fire doesn't get you anywhere because we're now going to argue that all this other stuff, all these other mysteries, the body burning so thoroughly, the nearby objects not being burned, and so on, are still there, and you have to explain them. And so I think we have. I think I think that what we've done is we look at each case, you see, and and we try to to explain um, what happened with the the evidence at hand. So in the earliest case that we dealt with, which was in the 18th century, a Countess Bandy in Italy, um, there was a knocked over oil lamp on the floor next to her body. We, we, we just think that's, you have to allow us to invoke that <laughs> and, and to suggest that, you know, the lamp may have, been knocked over and burst into flames and caught her, or she may have gotten up in the night. It was on the floor. She could have, uh, it, it was obviously lit, and she dragged her nightdress over it and stumbling out of bed to the bathroom or something. Um, we just found over and over um, explanations, maybe one or two rare cases we would find, and we, we would not know that the person was a smoker. But we would say this. We would say, look, it's not our burden to prove a negative. We could just assume we don't know that the person wasn't a smoker. And we're just going to adopt Occam's razor here and say the person may have um, been smoking. Or they may have tried with those old uh, uh, matches that would sputter and you know, strike one, it would throw off <laughs> streaking flames, you know. Uh, those old-fashioned barn burner type matches, 
who's to say that that something like that didn't uh, catch them on fire? Uh, there wasn't always an absolute, uh, you know, big pointing neon sign pointing to a cigarette or a match. But but we looked very carefully at these cases and provided what we thought was um, the best and corroborative evidence for these cases. And uh, some were more obvious than others. Well, that's exactly what happened to my grandmother, rest in peace, many, many years ago. After going through a hurricane in the Caribbean, she was lighting a kerosene lamp, and some oh. of the sparks from the match hit her nightgown and just went in flames. So, Oh, right. You see, and in, and when this was something we, we thought about quite a bit. You know, today we, we have some uh, governmental controls over safety of clothing and fabrics and stuff and protection of infants and all kinds of protections of things. But there were very flammable clothes uh, in previous times. Um, now you're not as apt to just burst into flame from your clothing. But um, sure, uh, a, these are all tragedies. And sometimes the difference in a case that became spontaneous human combustion or a case that just became a, a, a known cause but a tragedy was whether somebody else was there to see what happened. That's right. Because if somebody was there, they would intervene or they would come on it soon enough to have seen what was happening or to understand and so forth. And, and they would also intervene and put out any fire around the person and, and stop things. And those cases went down as, you know, careless smoking or uh, a faulty fireplace or something and, and were not put into this category. What happened in this category were these lonely people, these elderly men and women, often lonely widows living by themselves, um, and and if they got in trouble, like Dr. Bentley, there was no one there to help them. Uh, and they're, they're, we found quite a correlation. Let me just end with this on this subject. We found quite a correlation between um, the person living alone, the time of year. It was usually the winter months when you had fires and fireplaces was more common. Uh, living alone was almost essential to this uh, scenario. These people were almost always alone. No one was there uh, to rescue them. And they were, in some way, tended to be incapacitated. For example, they were elderly, infirm, um, intoxicated. Some were heavy drinkers. Uh, they were intoxicated. Uh, Mrs. Reeser, you remember, I said, was uh, had taken uh, sleeping pills because she was having trouble sleeping. Uh, in some ways, they were more apt, therefore, to have an accident happen to them, and they were less able to respond properly. So if you're drunk, you can just see you would be more apt to set yourself on fire and less able to handle it properly. Not to mention carbon monoxide poisoning, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a so, case. Oh, I'm sorry. Finish your statement. No, go ahead. No, I'm I'm done. I'm ready for another case. There's a case you solved decades ago that you never publish until you publish this book, Real Life X-Files. Does it have to do with Ripley's? Believe it or not, you have a case that deals with Ripley. Um, if I remember correctly, and mind you, <laughs> what I 
when I uh, work on these uh, cases, and, and you're getting me sometimes 10, 15, 20 years later, I may not <laughs> I know. may not remember every aspect until. And you you've just read it, so you're you're better up on it than I am. There was a case with a ri- the word Ripley written mysteriously in letters on a cypress knee. Was that the the case you're referring to? Let me go to it. This talks about uh, Ripley. One second, my computer just froze. Oh, it has to happen Let now. Me, uh, I've got I've got a copy of my book in front of me because I was afraid. Yeah, believe it or let me see page page thirty seven. For those of you at home who are following along in in my book. Um, let's see yes yes this is this is an amusing little case um, of a cypress knee now what a cypress knee is is a natural growth that grows up from the roots of a cypress tree in a swamp the the tree is is not in uh, ordinary soil but is in a swamp it's in water and its roots send vertically upward these shoots to get air. And they're sort of a woody tissue uh, thing sticking up, kind of like a large stick of asparagus <laughs> sticking up. Uh, and you see these in cypress swamps. And they're often quite interesting and decorative. You know, they're no two alike, and they're sort of... Um, kind of a rustic looking and stuff if you take the bark off of them and clean them up they're really quite elegant looking as just a piece of natural something and people use them to make uh, lamps out of and other woodworking things and decorate them up well anyway um in the sort of uh, welt like uh gnarled forms of this particular one um, which was on display at the Ripley Museum in Niagara Falls, Canada. And many years ago, I was the magician at the Houdini Hall of Fame. And on my day off, I would go around to the museums, and Ripley's was one of them. And I would see this cypress knee and these welt-like marks um, appeared from top to bottom to spell the word R-I-P-L-E-Y. A little distorted, but pretty darn clear. And they had a sign that said, Ripley's, written by nature. Believe it or not. And I would always say, well, I don't believe it. I, I just, this, this looks too good to be true. I think somebody's having us on here, but, and so forth. Years later, I happened to be down in Florida there was a, a Cypress Knee Museum in a Cypress Swamp. And I went in the museum, and there were all kinds of Cypress Knees with messages and words and things on them. And I, I asked the lady about it, and I told her about one at Ripley's. And she said, just a minute. And she got went and got the old guy that sort of ran this place and was the expert and I talked to him for a minute, and he said, did it have Ripley written on it? And I said, yes, sir, it did. And he turned, indicating I should follow him, and turned and walked off to a little outbuilding and unlocked the padlock and opened the door. And sitting inside on the floor were several cypress knees. Each one of them said, Ripley, 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 Ripley. 
he had made one for each of the museums. And, of course, he made these. And how he made them, he never intended this to deceive anyone. It was sort of tongue-in-cheek, you see. And the joke was, it was sort of, yes, written by nature, but he helped nature along a good bit. So what he would do is get in his motorboat and motor out into the swamp and find one of these cypress knees sticking up out of the water. They're sort of cone-shaped. And he'd find a good one. He'd leave it uh, where it was, but he'd take his knife and deeply carve into the bark. He would carve these letters, R-I-P-L-E-Y. And then he would leave it alone for a period of time. And the nature would, of course, heal those wounds he had made in the in the cypress knee. And it would grow extra material over them and make these sort of welt-like letters. And when you took off the bark and steamed it a little and cleaned it up, uh, I'm looking at, at, at one as I'm talking to you. I'm looking at one on top of a shelf that I have. And uh, this guy, Mr. Gaskins, uh, gave me one as a gift because uh, it turned out Ripley's only wanted one. And I, I, I'll give Ripley's the benefit of the doubt. I, d- I doubt that they really meant to mislead anyone. And they probably didn't want one at each museum because that would be a little, maybe too much of a giveaway. <laughs> right. Maybe tongue-in-cheek. Anyway, I got to the bottom of the story and I got him to write an affidavit. And I got Ripley to uh, agree to remove remove theirs from uh, display, or or fully explain it, and and I and you know, I put a stop to it. <laughs> it was a very small case. I mean, nothing of great moment. You know, it didn't uh, uh, comment on life and death and extraterrestrial life or anything of any great moment. But it was just one of those little things that you you look at and you think. No, I don't. I don't. I don't believe it. And then I didn't know what to do about it. And just by luck, I would like for you to think that I shrewdly ended up at that museum after, you know, clever investigative. What? It, no, I just happened by, and it was just a stroke of luck. Of course, I did think, oh, this would be a good place to stop and maybe ask about that. And, and it's maybe not surprising that it was the source because. It was the most important Cypress Knee place probably in North America, so maybe not so great a, a coincidence, but it was a bit of a coincidence. And we have more cases to discuss. We have to take a one and only break. We have UFOs, abductions, implants, a lot of stuff coming up. And the book, once again, the title, Real X-Files, Real Life X-Files, Investigating the Paranormal. But you also have many other books. Joe, how can people buy the books and learn more about your work? Well, they can go to my website and uh, see a picture of the book and a little blurb saying some of what what it's about. And uh, I think it will take you um, to the publisher and you can order it. Or you can just order it, you know, in the usual way through your local bookseller or on Amazon. But I believe that um, pretty much all of my books are still in print. And um, that's a good thing. It's good when an author's books have not um, totally sold out or they've they've sold out, but now we have it in paperback or we have a new edition. Uh, my book, on uh, which I'm very proud of, called Secrets of the Sideshows, is out in the last year or so in an 
audiobook version on a CD, and, and um, you can listen to it uh, in your car. Now, let me say this, folks. This is something coming up in part two that you don't want to miss. I'm going to leave it till the end because Joe is a Sherlock Holmes, modern times Sherlock Holmes, but he also has an open mind because there's one case that hidden personally, the personal meets the paranormal, and you don't want to miss what happened. And I'd like to know his take on this, how he can explain this, but I'm going to leave it like that until you come back for the second part. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm Mel Fabregas. Delighted to be here with Joe Nickel discussing real life X-Files. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members or subscribe, or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, our USB drive with all our shows, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.